0: Welcome to Hack Stack Level 4, the final level. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to explore, and yes, find the meaning of life. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first 3 levels, starting with episode number 1. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Koz.
1: Hey everyone. Man, It seems like it has been a very long time since I've sat in the podcast saddle. And in fact, it has. Um, I haven't really counted. I think it's, I don't know, been over a month. But anyway, I am really excited to get into level four. So this is it. Episode 24. Uh, We are starting to get into the final level. If you look closely at the Hackstack logo, it is actually, it it has some meanings. Uh, if you look carefully, you'll notice that there's four levels, okay? There's four blocks, and there's ladders, and there's little people at different levels. And you'll notice at the top level, the top of the pyramid, there are only three people standing there. And relative to all the other people, uh, most people, uh, you know, get up to level one or two or uh, decent chunking up to level three. Um, <laughs> just like in real life, most people don't even start, they don't even start climbing the ladder. They don't look into things like uh, goal setting and pro- productivity and planning and building their relationships and things like that. But occasionally you will get someone that is willing to explore the very top level. And when I, I started this podcast out, that was kind of the point. Uh, I wanted to get to this level uh, I think it is, in fact, the most important level, and this whole podcast was scheduled in my mind to end uh, after I completed level four. Now, I'm still not sure if I'm going to end the podcast or not. Uh, it will always still be out there in cyberspace. Uh, I've, I've mentioned that to some people, and they've uh, encouraged me to keep going, but for now, I just want to make sure I, I get my original goal under my belt, which is explore all of these levels. And this level, we're really going to talk about the meaning of life. And to me, this this is actually the most important level. And you may ask yourself, well, if this is the most important level, why are we discussing it last? Well, to me, when you live, especially in a first world country like the United States, uh, there's a lot of distractions in life. You're worried about paying your bills, getting ahead in your career, Uh, juggling family and friends and all of these things which are are truly important. But unless you kind of get those things in line, you don't even have time to like, I don't know, just breathe and reflect on some of these more important matters. So that's why I designed this show to kind of take care of some of those other uh, important things, albeit uh, less important in my opinion. Uh, You get those taken care of and then you actually have the time to self-reflect uh, ponder some of these deeper questions, and yes, engage people uh, in conversations about some of these weightier matters so that 's that 's a pretty big claim of me to say that we're we 're actually going to discuss, and at the end we 're going to talk about what, in fact is the meaning of life and I know that's that 's kind of an outrageous claim to some of the people listening, but again, this is just the first episode of level four. So you stick with me and we will get to that answer. And who is going to help us start to answer that question? Well, it's a guy by the name of Steven Seagal. Yep, that's right. Steven Seagal, the action movie star from the late 80s and early 90s. He starred in such hits such as Above the Law, Under Siege, Hard to Kill, uh, Marked for Death, And various other movie titles that either have death or destruction or justice or (laughs) things of that nature in the movie title. And there is another action star from the late 80s and early 90s who will also help us explore the meaning of life. And that is Jean-Claude Van Damme. So let's, for those of you unfamiliar with uh, those two, I'll just give a little bio on those guys. And, and this shouldn't really come as a surprise. I, I give a lot of references in this podcast uh, to, to make my point, and I'll reference uh, things from the 80s and 90s. That's when I was up to my eyeballs in pop culture and just engrossed in all of things, you know, entertaining, but somewhat trivial. But I learned a lot of lessons from all that pop culture, and Steven Seagal is one of the teachers of those lessons. And he is mainly known for his uh, action movies but in particular the martial art genre he usually played a cop but the 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 underlying skill that he has is a, a martial art called aikido and that's basically when you use your opponent's weight and movement against them and it made for some really really cool fight scenes uh, but, but also some memorable uh, one-liners and quotes. So I will just give you a little quick smorgasbord of some of his uh, more memorable scenes. So let's check this out.
0: What are you grinning at, huh? Well, you know, it's only four of you guys
1: and uh, you only have one shot left in here, you know? Well...
0: One thought he was invincible, the other thought he could fly. So?
2: They were both wrong. Money now and a lot more when I get in that
0: office. I can take that to the bank. I'm going to take
1: you to the bank, Senator Trent. To the blood bank. (laughs) Alright, there you go. I'm going to take you to the blood bank. Now, how incredibly cheesy is that? Well... I don't know, like most movies, when you, you look back on them years later, they are kind of cheesy. But in the moment, man, those, those Steven Seagal movies were totally cool to me. And maybe just because it appealed to my sense of justice, right? You, you've got someone that's taking care of the bad guys. And there's something just cool about that. Well, there was another action star that was pretty big on the scene around that same time. And his name was Jean-Claude Van Damme. Now, he was more of a pretty boy. Uh, chicks in general really took to him, and he's got all sorts of rippling muscles. And when he, when he was in his movies, he had lots of flying kicks and roundhouse kicks and very visually stunning acrobatic type kicks. And his signature move was doing like the splits. Now, when I see a woman or a gymnast doing the splits, that's impressive to me. But when you when you see a grown muscle-bound man do the splits, it's all, you know, it's kind of impressive and crazy and disturbing all all at the same time. But guess what? His acrobatic kicks and doing the splits and all that good stuff, it sold a whole bunch of movie tickets. So Van Damme is known for such movies as Bloodsport, Kickboxer, Lionheart, Double Impact, Universal Soldier, but I think the one I remember most of him was probably the one that kind of put him on the map. Uh, and that was the, the movie Bloodsport. So anyway, what does Jean-Claude Van Damme have to contribute to our discussion uh, regarding the meaning of life? Well, I'm going to play a quick little clip for you, which includes, I believe, four movies that he was in are, are going to be played in this clip uh, one of which I think he's actually chopping down a tree with rapid kicks. So anyway, it goes quick, but pay attention to the kernel of wisdom that is contained in this clip. Ah! 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 Okay, yeah, so I lied. There wasn't a nugget of wisdom in there. And, and I actually looked for some Van Damme quotes. And, man, he just doesn't have the one-line zingers uh, that some of the other action stars had. He was more, uh, like I said, he, he was just had some visually cool uh, fight scenes with all his flying around and kicking and all, all of that good stuff. So he- here we are. We've got these two action stars, Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And when I was watching these movies, right, a lot of these were were late, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s. Inevitably, you would get in discussions with your friends about who would win in a fight between Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I'm not kidding. These were literal discussions that me and my friends would have. I even saw some of these discussions get heated at point. Like, people had really strong opinions on this stuff. And, you know, I think this is just like a guy thing that that grows out of a boy thing when you're, when you're kids, right. And you're a little boy, you, you talk about this. Stuff. I mean, you talk about, man, can Superman beat up Batman and, and, and you know, that's, that's real. <laughs> and the movie studios have now capitalized that there's actually the Superman versus Batman movie, which, which I have not seen, but it's not surprising that that movie was created, right. That's, that's kind of what, guys and in particular little boys talk about like which superhero is better every little kid's got their favorite action hero you know iron man the hulk uh th- these are like universal classic type things so here i am i don't know what 20 years old and, and i'm having these discussions with my friends about <laughs> who is a better fighter and, and this is back really before the internet where you could just google statistics like you you, you know like well steven seagal he's taller but Jean-Claude, he's got more more muscles. Well, yeah, but who would win? And you you would have these weird discussions that were... I mean, they were actually... They were fun. They For the most part, they were lighthearted. And you never actually would be able to answer that question because those two were never going to step in the ring. But then a, an interesting twist happened regarding this discussion. In 1993, a thing came onto the scene that was just mind-blowing and fascinating to me. And that's called the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Now this thing is still going strong. It's uh 20 plus years later. Uh, but when this thing first came onto the scene in the early 90s, I was totally engrossed. And for those of you not familiar with what the Ultimate Fighting Championship is, is it's basically a cage match between different martial arts or actually any fighting style. You you would have karate, uh, jiu-jitsu, boxing, kickboxing, grappling, wrestling, sumo. Uh, I mean, it didn't matter. You could be a soccer player. If you think you could fight, you, you could go in and test your mettle in the ring. Nowadays, there's a little more rules and there's different weight classes. But when this thing first started, there was pretty much no rule i think like the only rule they had is is don't poke the other guy's eye out i mean <laughs> i mean that's how crazy and insane it was i mean there were there were people in states and groups protesting this i mean you could only have it in certain st- i think like las vegas was one of the main areas where it was even considered legal and it was on pay per view and it was the coolest thing and here here was what was particularly Interesting to me about this phenomenon. All of a sudden, all of these hypothetical discussions that I had or people had, you know, karate is better than jujitsu, well, boxing's better, well, this is better than that. Well, you would actually get these different styles in the ring at the same time, and whoever won, man, that makes a strong case for which style is better. So you would have these boxers that would go in and can throw a punch and can get power behind that punch, and can knock more than a few people out. However, they'd go against someone that was good at wrestling, and they would never even have a chance to throw a punch. So that went a long way to settling some of these discussions. Like boxers, stand-up boxers, did not have a chance. And there was one particular guy that I remember that just dominated the entire field. He won the first three Ultimate Fighting Championships. And his name was Hoist Gracie. And here's what I think I like so much about this guy. He was roughly my build. He's about 6'1", weighed like 170 pounds, real tall and thin. You wouldn't think much of him, but he would just dominate. He would not only beat, but he he would hurt and embarrass people that weighed, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds more than him. And he did it with this style called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where he would basically just become a boa constrictor and he would choke out your air supply through your neck or he would put your arm in an arm lock and twist it. I think he may have even broke a couple arms. So now just just keep that in mind that this is real people doing real fights. Real blood is being drawn. Real bones are being broken. And there is a clear-cut winner in these fights, so now these discussions between me and my friends became a little bit more real. You know, when you're a kid and you're talking about superhero, that's completely make believe stuff. Uh, but then you're talking about, well, could Jean Claude Van Damme beat Steven Seagal in a fight? And it was fun to talk about, but you you knew you were probably never going to see that. Well, now all of a sudden, you've got people that are fighting. In openly challenging other people. And you've got this, this tall, skinny Brazilian guy who's basically taking on all comers and, and whipping them up really good. So now this discussion between my friends became, hey, do you who would win? Who would win between Hoist Gracie and Steven Seagal? Who would win between Hoist Gracie and Jean-Claude Van Damme? And I remember having these discussions and it really came, we, we came to the conclusion, or at least I did after chatting about this hypothetical with my friends, that this, this would never happen. And here's why it's never going to happen. If, if, if you step into the ultimate fighting ring, uh, I think you had to fight like four or five fights in a row and you had to win them all. And if, if you did all of that and won the top prize and got your brains beat out, I think the top prize for the winner was maybe at the time anyway, it was 50 grand. Maybe. I mean, it could have been a 100, but it, it was small relative to <laughs> the life and limb that you're risking. I, I would venture to say at the time, people were more doing it out of pride and moxie and bravada more than anything else. So why would Jean-Claude Van Damme step into that ring? You know, if he makes a movie and he makes, I don't know what it is, call it a million dollars. If he makes a million dollars making one movie, that's great. If he steps into this ring to try to win $50,000 and he gets knocked out, <laughs> guess what? He's not going to sell as many movie tickets because people are going to realize that he's hes a fraud. And, and actually, I, I think Jean-Claude, I forget when this was, but I think he actually got in a fight at a bar and was knocked out by a bouncer. You know, I don't know all the details, but that kind of happened after after the height of his movie career. I know he's still he's still been in a few movies lately. Uh, I think he was in like The Expendables 2 or something like that. But so anyway, he, he got knocked out by a bouncer at a bar and he had to go to the hospital. And I think he said it was a humbling experience, blah, blah, blah. And I remember even at that time, he took a lot of heat for that, you know, because he's supposed to be this big, strong action guy, and he got knocked out by a regular bouncer guy. So, or at least he's not as good as he's billed in the movies. And I don't blame him for not wanting to step in the ring under those circumstances and what he had to risk. But if he claims to be the tough guy that he is, but won't even enter the ring, I mean, do you really honestly think people are going to believe that he's got what it takes, right? Actions speak louder than words. So if I'm, uh, if I'm looking, if I'm on the outside looking in and someone says they're the best, but yet they're afraid to engage, they're afraid to go to battle and they're afraid to fight. I I think they're scared or they're bluffing. Otherwise, why wouldn't they just get in the ring and duke it out? So now I'm going to circle back to the meaning of life and I'm going to be pretty upfront with the path I'm going to take and the position I hold and I'm going to try my best to persuade you that this is the correct position because when you talk about the meaning of life the discussion inevitably falls upon the subject of does God exist now this shouldn't come as a surprise to you if you've listened to any of the other episodes I believe that God exists and more specifically I believe The Christian God of the Bible is the accurate representation of that God. And here's where I may start to lose people. Like, people just don't want to hear about this stuff. But I actually designed this episode for non-believers. So you've got atheists and theists. You know, obviously, if you're a Christian, you're a theist. So you've got atheists and theists and everything in between. Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Mormonism, Islam... I mean, Scientology, the, the list goes on and on. And why do I want you to stick around, uh, not only for this episode, but for how many other episodes I have as I complete level four. I want your ideas to step in the ring, if you will. If you're an atheist or an unbeliever or a skeptic or however you want to classify that, I appreciate your willingness to step in the ring. Now. You're more than welcome to be like those action stars in the movie that says they're the best, that says their ideas got the goods. The opposing view is weak and feeble, and you can just walk away and be dismissive. But if that's the case, just like Jean-Claude Van Damme, like if you don't want to step in the ring, I think you're scared. I don't think you got the goods. And if you run off, that's going to say a lot more about you than it does about me. Now I want to make another thing clear. You know, I, I think God exists. I think the evidence for God's existence is pretty strong. And I think I can enter into discussions on that subject and and make a pretty strong case. I would even say I could quote unquote win a discussion or a debate. But I wanna be clear. I, I think I could I could win not because I'm particularly smart or particularly clever. I just think my view has the goods. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because sometimes if you're ever, you read a book or or you watch a debate and you you think one side wins, you're like, oh, well, you know, that guy's just a better speaker or he's a better this or a better that. Sometimes people will try to assign reasons for victory other than the actual merit of the issues. So I'm going to use a little sports analogy to explain this a little bit better. Let's talk basketball for a second. I know very little about basketball as far as how to coach a team. And I've got one coach in particular that I know is pretty famous and he's got a really good track record of winning. And that's Phil Jackson. He won a lot of championships coaching Michael Jordan uh, back in the day with the Chicago Bulls. He then later went on Uh, to coach uh, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant in Los Angeles and won a bunch of championships there. So clearly, this guy has a coaching pedigree. And there is no question about it that he is a better basketball coach than me. So say Phil Jackson and I are, are going up against each other coaching a hypothetical basketball game. And on my team, you've got the likes of LeBron James, Stephen Curry, Carmelo Anthony, and a host of other NBA All-Stars, they're on my team. And Phil Jackson, he's coaching the local middle school basketball team. Now let me ask you this. Who do you think is going to win that game? I don't even have to coach to win that game. I just tell my players, hey, do your thing. And they're going to dominate. So even though Phil Jackson is a better coach, he would still get smoked because he doesn't have the right players. Now this may seem like a bold claim, But that's how I feel when theism takes on other views like atheism. Like me and you, we're just kind of the coaches picking the players, okay? I pick uh, Christianity and you pick atheism and let's go play a basketball game and see who wins. I think the holes in atheism are so large that you can be smarter than me. You can be more articulate than me, more well-read. You can have all these things going for you. And I still think... I'll beat you. Again, not because I'm particularly smart. I just think I got the better players. So those are the two analogies I want you to keep in mind. Just be willing to challenge yourself and step in the ring. You know, don't just say your view is the best. Put it to the test. Then if your players start to get beat up, whether you're you're coaching uh, the basketball team or, or you're coaching Jean-Claude Van Damme and I'm coaching Hoist Gracie, if your side starts to lose and starts to take too many hits to the chin, or the scoreboard starts to be a blowout, consider changing your view. I mean, that's an indication that you may be playing for the wrong team. And I don't want to come off as being like, oh, if you're not a Christian, or you're not a theist, you're a mean person, you're a bad person. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you happen to be wrong on this particular question. And I don't think this is a question that you want to be wrong on. This question of God existence has been asked for centuries, and you're doing yourself a disservice by not taking time to at least put some effort into resolving this question for yourself personally. So that's it, man. That's my sales pitch on basically just giving this a try. And now we're about to actually listen to some audio that tries to resolve and address this question on the meaning of life we're actually going to try to make progress toward this end goal but to start things off i really need to cover this subject of of truth i mean is this something that can actually be figured out is there such a thing as truth is this a topic that i can actually be mistaken on or that you can actually be mistaken on can one of us be wrong and one of us be right And it's a really simple concept, but like most of the stuff that we talk about on this show, sometimes things sink in a whole lot more when put in a certain way. And I think this is one of those cases. So here's a clip that takes on a very important topic uh, when we're beginning to discuss the meaning of life. This clip is by Greg Kokel, and we've played a few clips by him on prior episode, but this one is called The Truth Is Not Ice Cream. Enjoy.
0: And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to tell you two things that are absolutely vital for you to understand when you go out into the 21st century culture. Two things. Here they are, very simple. I'll give them to you and then I'll explain them. First thing, truth is not like ice cream. Second thing, faith is not wishing. Truth is not like ice cream. Faith is not wishing. What do I mean by that? Let's start with the ice cream fact. Let's start with Haagen-Dazs. Haagen-Dazs butter pecan. Did you ever have that stuff? That is just... There are so many... Did you know that there's more fat in a pint of Haagen-Dazs than in a pint of lard? Did you know that? What a way to go. Right. Here's my statement. I make this statement. Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious. I already got some amens in the front here. Okay, so here's my question. Is that statement true or is it false? How many people say, I got some yeses up here already. How many say true? Yes, yes. No, I'm asking you. Is that true or false? Pardon me? True. Okay, true here. Anybody say it's false? Well, we got a lot of people say it's false. Okay, let me ask you, those of you who said that it was true, are you troubled in any sense by these people saying that it's false? Like, what's the matter with you? No, I mean... I mean, when you talk about ice cream flavors, it seems to be that some could say it's delicious and some could equally say the opposite thing, it is not delicious, and everybody's comfortable with that. There doesn't seem to be any conflict. There's no confusion there. Now, how is it that a statement, Hagen dazs butter pecan ice cream, can be true and false at the same time? Oh, different people. Hear what she said. Now, here's the point. Here, when we say Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious, when I say that, it sounds like I'm talking about the ice cream, but I'm not really talking about the ice cream. I'm talking about not the object, but the, the subject, myself in this case, or yourself in this case. Okay, so this is true, if I could put it this way, for you, and it may not be true for another person, and so. The way this statement can be both true and false at the same time is if it's spoken by different subjects. Now, if I said, for example, you don't like a Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream, what's wrong with you? You're a sinner because you don't like Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream. I mean, this would be odd because ice cream flavors and tastes, those are the kind of things that are right or wrong. Okay, And so we, we realize from this illustration that, there's, that a thing can be true in a way that is true for the subject, and that is called a, guess what kind of truth? A subjective truth. Okay, got that? Now, let's change our claim. Let's just say um, I made the claim that Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is a medicine that cures diabetes. Now, how many agree with that? Nobody? How many disagree? Well, this is different, isn't it? Now, what if I were to say... I think it does cure diabetes. What would you say to me? Is anybody uncomfortable with telling me I'm wrong? It's odd, isn't it? In the first case, nobody was uncomfortable with two opposite points of view on the same statement, and everybody thought that was fine. And now, when I give an opposite point of view on this statement, you just are very comfortable in saying that I'm wrong. Now, if I were to say, no, you're wrong, then we'd have a little debate, and we might look at the evidence pertaining to the claim itself. Because here the claim is different. This claim is not about me. It is not about my personal tastes or preferences. Here's a claim now that's not about the subject. It's rather about the the object, in this case the insulin and the state of affairs about diabetes, etc. In objective claims, in the first case, subjective claims, they are neither true nor false. In an objective claims, they are either true or false. And if I would disagree with you on an objective claim, well, then we'd have a discussion and a debate. We'd bring evidence to find out who is actually wrong. But no one would take offense, really, at the claim that you are wrong. We just want to adjudicate, figure out who's actually correct in this particular issue. Now, what this teaches us is that there are actually two ways for a thing to be true. Things can be true in an ice cream kind of way. And when they're true in the ice cream kind of way, they're true for the subject, true for you, and you could have competing points of view, and nobody's bothered by that. Somebody else can have a totally different opinion and doesn't ruffle any feathers. Or it can be true in an insulin kind of way. And in that case, it isn't just any old answer will do. Then there's a right answer and a wrong answer, and it seems like the right and wrong answer matters in many cases in those kinds of things. Subjective truth and objective truth. Let me cash this out for you here. In our culture, there's a tremendous amount of confusion on this issue. And the confusion is is that many people treat religious claims and moral claims as if they were ice cream kinds of things and not insulin kinds of things. And so when you go out and you talk to somebody now about your faith, you're going to get different kinds of responses. Less and less now, as time goes on, are you going to hear the claim that Christianity is not true, it's false. Instead, you're going to hear something different. You're not going to hear that you are wrong. You're going to hear that you're right, that it is true for you. But it is not true for me. And you see, this approach, or this point of view, or this way of dealing with the Christian claim, dealing with it as ice cream and not like insulin, explains a few things. For example, how could it be that all religions are actually equally valid ways to God? This is called pluralism. All religions lead to God. All are the right road to God. It seems to me if somebody makes that claim, and a lot of people make this claim, it's really a very aggressive claim because it could mean only one of two things. First, it could mean, I happen to know, as a matter of fact, that God is pleased with any religious attempt to reach Him. I mean, I have some inside information, and I know what God wants. And God says, gee, any try, any good effort, any sincere attempt is adequate for me. Now, that might be one way of understanding it. And you could say, well, so all religions are making that... Sincere attempt, and they all reach God, and God's satisfied with that. Now, that seems to me a rather bold claim, though. Uh, You have to know what God actually wants, and that's what people don't like to hear. In fact, that's part of their objection. You think you speak for God. But on the other hand, anyone who claims that religions all lead to God are really making a similar kind of claim. They think they know what God has in mind, okay? Now, it might be that they don't believe it for that reason. There's another alternative, The other alternative is that all religions lead to God because no religion ultimately leads to God. And religion is just a game we play to make us feel better. And then it doesn't matter what religious view you have. They are all equally good to make you feel better if it makes you feel better. And you find the one you like. And now we're back to ice cream, aren't you? That's the way it is mostly in our culture now. It isn't that they think that God really exists and and He's happy with everyone. They have an inside track but rather they think well really what religion is is a game that we play like marx said religion is the opiate of the people it makes us feel better and what this does is reduces religion to a kind of a placebo placebo is like a little sugar pill that you take when you think you're sick but you're not and so the doctor knowing that you're not sick but you think you are a hypochondriac or something they'll give you a little pill and then you say oh i got some medicine oh that must help and now i feel better and it's just a psychological trick you're not sick but you think you're getting better and so we take this little placebo pill and by the same token, on this view, religion just turns out to be a placebo. Why do we show up here on Sundays? Well, because we need something. We need to have a crutch. We need to have an emotional uplift. We need something to believe in and a lot of times you hear this kind of language. You know, Everybody needs something and it's especially good for us to give the kids something. Now it, it strikes me that if the something you're not giving them is actually true, If it turns out to be just a fantasy, I'm not sure why that helps. In any event, that's the view. And so you're going to encounter a lot of people that really have this particular point of view. And the point of view is that religion is just a placebo. It's ice cream. Choose what you want because it's just a matter of personal preference. And if you choose your ice cream, don't act as if your ice cream should be his ice cream. And by the way, if it turns out that that's all religion is, if religion is just a placebo, if it's just a boost that we give ourselves, if it's just a crutch, if it's just a psychological trick, they're right. We shouldn't demand that other people favor the psychological trick that happens to help us. Maybe our trick won't help them and another trick will. Let them find what makes them feel better after all. Leave them alone. And in fact, to believe a thing just means to believe that it's so to believe it's true, you know. So the application for this part here, for you, is to understand this distinction between Christianity as ice cream and Christianity as insulin, to understand that the claim of Christianity for from the beginning has been an insulin kind of claim, and this is why Christians were willing to die for what they thought was actually true, and why in the context of our culture, even though there's this emphasis to relativize our claims, whether in this case religious and our moral claims too. This is what we wrote the book on relativism is about, feet firmly planted in midair. Well, that's your morality. It doesn't have to be my morality. Well, we deal with that in the book. When we are confronted with this kind of pressure, the temptation is to shrink back and take the safe way out and say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but that's my personal belief. I'm a Christian, but that was the way I was raised. Oh, he understands the way I was raised. Well, these are just ways of relativizing our faith. People aren't offended by you saying how you were raised. Oh, that explains it's just an accident of your biography, you know. Accident of history. That's okay. Well, that doesn't offend me. Oh, that's your personal belief? Fine. You have your ice cream and I got mine. That doesn't bother me either. And so when we take refuge by expressing our faith in this way, we are turning it from insulin to ice cream, and ice cream doesn't do anything. This is why it's very important for us to say, graciously but firmly, my conviction is that Christianity is actually true. It isn't just my flavor. Now, I could be wrong about that, but it's the kind of claim that is either right or wrong. It's not an ice cream kind of claim.
1: Okay, so now you have a really good idea between the difference between objective truth and subjective truth. I mean, it's a really simple concept, but it's often overlooked. And therefore, it just confuses people. Now, when you talk to people, you're not going to hear people talk in words like, hey, that's a subjective truth, or, oh, oh, that over there, that's an objective truth. But what's a little easier for people to sort of wrap their minds around in, in everyday conversation is a fact versus opinion. So oftentimes, I'll use those words as substitutes because uh, they pretty much mean the same thing as objective truth. Uh, versus subjective truth, and I'll give you a quick little story about a conversation I had uh, over email with a really good friend of mine. And the conversation was sparked more by a a Facebook post of his, and I I knew a little bit about his his background and some of his beliefs, so that's that's kind of why I went down this path with him. Uh, it wasn't because of the issue per se, which was was gun control. It was the underlying. Uh, facts I knew about him that he, he didn't believe in objective truth when it came to morality. So for whatever reason, and it seems like a lot of people think this way, I, I don't know why uh, it's really easy to point out and sort of defeat that view. Um, but anyway, it's, it's the view that there are certain facts in life, you know, two plus two equals four, uh, the earth revolves around the sun. George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? These, these are facts, right? But anything that deals with morality is subjective. And it goes, well, you know, who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? And it, it sounds so convincing on the surface, but when you actually apply it to a specific topic, it doesn't make any sense. So anytime you, you hear someone use the phrase, you should do something or you shouldn't do something or you ought to do this or you ought not to do that, that's a really big red flag that what they're they're making a moral claim. And this friend of mine, again, he he believes in objective truth only when it comes to factual things, namely like science and history, stuff like that. But morality? No, that's that's basically just down to to popular vote. So so how I sort of illustrated this to kind of point this out is the topic of of gun control came up and he is very passionate about uh, gun control laws. Uh, Me, I'm I, I don't know. I guess I'd say I, I'm agnostic on the issue. That's that's sort of what <laughs> why I like to talk about it. I didn't have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak. So I could use this issue as a way to sort of vet out some of his thought process and maybe expose a contradiction in thinking. So now keep in mind, this guy does not believe there are any such things as objective truth when it comes to morality. So he, he had some post on Facebook, and then I just you know just kind of used those terms. I'm like, okay, so you think gun control is a good thing? Is that fact or opinion? And he said, I actually don't think it's just an opinion. I do have evidence pr- that proves the logic of safer, more secure gun policy. Now, he, he, he thinks he avoided something, so I drilled down a little bit deeper. And I said, well, you just think that safety is more important than one's freedom to buy a gun. That's just your opinion, correct? So notice what I keep doing. I keep forcing him back to the word opinion, because I already know that anything that has to do with morality, he thinks is only an opinion, and one opinion isn't better than another opinion. But here he is basically talking about a moral issue, gun control, and saying that his opinion's better. So you, you kind of see how this this sort of underlying contradiction is is. Is there, I'm just trying to point it out. And then he goes into this spiel about how less guns cause, you know, if there were less guns out there, there'd be less death and there'd be less carnage. And you know, I don't know, I, I assume there's some truth to that, and I wasn't necessarily arguing that case. I was just pointing out that there's two contradictory things going on here. You know, we want to keep people safe. That's a moral statement, right? But we also want to respect people's freedom of choice to to buy a gun right? Personal freedom is a good thing, right? Well, so you have these two conflicting moral goods. And he says, well, his opinion is better than say other people's opinion. So the way I worded this question is, you think it's more important to cause less damage than protect one's freedom to buy an assault rifle. But that's just your opinion. Why is your opinion better than my opinion to the contrary? Question mark. Now, again, I was just playing devil's advocate here, uh, just trying to point out that you can't both hold in the same, I don't know, the same worldview that all morality is just an opinion and then spout out that, hey, these other people, they should be doing this. They shouldn't be buying these assault rifles. No, I... I maybe I could agree with that, you know, with a little more research. I don't know. But my point is, you can't, you can't just say there's no such thing as objective moral truth, but everyone should be doing this. What, <laughs> what you're basically saying is everyone should be following my opinion. Now, I may not have cast that out too well for you guys, but let me, uh, let me put it this way. Opinions are something you can't be wrong about. So if you can't be wrong about it, why are you complaining that other people don't agree with you? Put another way, so if you use the Greg Kokel uh, ice cream analogy, do you ever see people like picketing ice cream shops? Like, hey, no more vanilla, no more vanilla. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no one does that. No one pickets vanilla ice cream because it's morally wrong. Because just like Greg Kokel said, it's a subjective truth and everybody's fine if people disagree with it. But then why is it that when there is a a lightning rod issue like, I don't know, abortion or same-sex marriage or immigration or something like that, like there's nightly news filming people with picket signs at the courthouse because a new law is about to be uh, passed or denied or what, what have you. So clearly there seems to be a difference between fact and opinion. And it seems pretty apparent, but for whatever reason, people don't. I don't know. They just don't get that. They don't see that they contradict themselves. And to illustrate that point a little bit more, I'm going to play an audio clip right now from Frank Turek. And he goes into this phenomenon a little bit more. Uh, Specifically, he talks about truth, but he talks about it in such a way that's really practical, like when you deal with people on issues like this. So I think it's pretty enlightening. And, And once you start to understand this concept... You'll, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see your friends make contradictory statements, people on Facebook, uh, the media, and it's just so discouraging when, when politicians make these, these boneheaded statements and they, do, they don't realize that they're completely and utterly, totally contradicting themselves. And, and Frank Turk, in this clip, he's actually going to use a term called the law of non-contradiction. All right, you may have never heard that term. It's a philosophical term. Uh, But whether you realize it or not, you use it all the time, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. So check it out, enjoy, and I'll have some comments afterwards.
2: We're going to talk about truth. What is truth? We might say truth is telling it like it is. Or history would be telling it like it was, but truth at the time is telling it like it is. Or we might say truth is what corresponds to reality. Or truth is what corresponds to its referent. If I say this is a black Bible referring to this book, that's true, right? It corresponds to its referent. If I say this is a white Quran, that would be false. Truth is what corresponds to its referent. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to its object. Now you say, Frank, this is really elementary. Why are we starting here? Because in today's society, our first duty is sometimes to state the obvious. Right? Because there are people out there actually who deny that truth exists. So we have to deal with that and we will. Now we're going to talk about something called the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction is going to be key to point one when we deal with this question, what is truth? The law of non-contradiction says opposite ideas cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense. For example, the earth can't be both round and not round at the same time and in the same sense, right? It's either round or it's not round, but it's not both, okay? Now, the law of non-contradiction is undeniable. It's just part of reality. You can't prove the law of non-contradiction. You just know it. It's one of the fundamental principles of all thought. How do you know anything? You have these tools that are built right into your mind and built right into reality. They're called the laws of logic. They're self-evident. And one of these laws of logic is the law of non-contradiction. Okay? They are to the thinking what your eyes are to see. You can't see without your eyes, right? Well, you can't think without the law of non-contradiction. It's just part of the universe. It's just the way things are. The law of non-contradiction is undeniable. Uh, It even applies to religious claims. For example, my friend Lee Strobel says God exists. Richard Dawkins, the guy who wrote The God Delusion, says God does not exist. Both of these positions can't be true, can they? Either God exists or he doesn't exist. Law of non-contradiction. You can't say that God does exist and not exist at the same time and in the same sense. Let me give you an example. Uh, Suppose you're walking down the street one day and you see a couple that you know. And uh, as you walk up to this couple, uh, this married couple, you say to the uh, husband, I understand you're expecting, you know, as a couple. And uh, he goes, no, and she goes, yes. You don't say, thanks very much. That really helps me. You think what? Well, maybe she hasn't told him or maybe something worse. But you don't just simply walk on saying she is pregnant and she's not pregnant at the same time and in the same sense, right? You go, it's it's either she is or she isn't. Well, same is true with this claim. Either God exists or he doesn't exist, but not both. But the law of non-contradiction is undeniable. Even those who deny it use it. Suppose you catch your friend of yours in a, in a contradiction and uh, they say, well, <laughs> I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. What should you say to them? you should say, you do. And they're going to say, "Uh, no, I don't. And you're going to say, you do. And they're going to say, no, I don't. And you're going to say, you do. Why? Because you're using it to contradict me, right? Every time you say, I don't, and I say, you do, you're using the law of non-contradiction. You can't avoid it. It's built right into the nature of the universe. In fact, there was a great Muslim many years ago, A philosopher who happened to be a Muslim, his name was Avicenna. He had a great way of convincing those who denied the law of non-contradiction that they were wrong. Here's what he said. He said, anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten, and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. Right? Being beaten is not the same as not being beaten, and being burned is not the same as not being burned. Okay? They're opposites. Anyway, um... You could try this with your friend, right? If he says he doesn't believe in the law of non-contradiction, kick him in the shins, right? You can say to him after you kick him in the shins, is that the same as not being kicked in the shins? The point here about truth is, is that all truth is absolute. There are no relative truths. And something that is absolute is true for all persons at all times in all places. There are no relative truths. Every truth is absolute. Now, when you say things like this, that all truth is absolute, you get a lot of objections. What are some of these objections? Well, here they are, right? you hear people say there is no truth. You say, I think Christianity is true. And they go, "Huh? there is no truth. Go, oh, got to deal with that, right? Or they'll say you can't know truth. You Christians, you think you know the truth. Let me tell you something. You can't know truth. Got to deal with that, right? How about this one? All truth is relative. What about that? If all truth is relative, then Christianity could be true for you, but it's not true for me. How about this one? It's true for you, but not for me. They state it that way too. Christianity is true for you, Buddhism is true for me. Or they may say this, no one has the truth. You think you've got the truth? Let me tell you something, nobody has the truth. Or they may say, if they really get mad at you, you know, you just ought not judge. You Christians, you're real judgmental, and Jesus said don't judge, so knock it off. A lot of Christians are just... Deer in the headlights after they get that objection, right? Or well, what do we do? I guess we can't judge. We've got to be quiet now. we got to deal with all these objections right here. And the way we're going to deal with them is a tactic that we talk about in the book called the Roadrunner Tactic. And I'll show you what that means in a minute. But that, this tactic right here, if you don't get anything else from our time together, if you get this tactic down and you internalize this and therefore are able to use it, this will be worth the time we spend together. You ready for this tactic? Because it turns out that every one of those objections that are up on the screen right now violate the law of non-contradiction. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example. What we're going to do is we're going to apply the claim to itself. Apply the claim to itself. Here's the example. If I were to stand up here and say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say? Hey, you just did, right? Didn't you just say that in English? Yeah. You see, that's a self-defeating claim. It violates the law of non-contradiction. Okay. Logically, it violates the law of non-contradiction. A practical violation of it would be for me to stand up here and say, my parents had no children that lived. <laughs> right. You go, uh, wait a minute. There's a contradiction here. All right. This contradiction is like a contradiction that you will see in the other statements I just had up here, and what we're gonna do is use the Roadrunner tactic to expose these. It reminds us of the of the Roadrunner, this tactic, because it reminds us of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. What's Wiley Coyote's only mission in life? Catch the Roadrunner to make him his meal, right? But Roadrunner's just a little bit too fast and a little bit too smart. Just as it looks like Coyote's about to catch him, what does Roadrunner do? He stops short of the cliff. And he goes blowing by the roadrunner. And for that split second, he's got that question mark over his head until he realizes what? That he's got no ground to stand on. And then he plummets to the valley floor in a heap. That's exactly what you can do to people who utter self-defeating statements to you. You can show them that they have no ground to stand on. And therefore, they plummet to the ground in a heap. Their whole argument collapses. So let's apply it to the arguments I had up there a minute ago. If somebody says to you there is no truth, what should you say to them? Apply the claim to itself. Go ahead, what? Is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it's true that there is no truth, I guess there is truth. The truth that there is no truth. But the truth that there is no truth can't be true, can it? Now, by the way, this particular tactic has the added benefit of making you look like a super genius, all right? One little tactic, super genius. All right, how about this one? All truth is relative. They say that, right? Christianity's is true for you, but it's relative, so atheism is true for me. What do you say to that one? Apply the claim to itself. Yes, is that a relative truth? No, that claims to be an absolute truth. They're saying that it's absolutely true that all truth is relative. Well, that can't be true. See, it cuts its own throat. Once again, super genius. How about this one? It's true for you, but not for me. This is one of my favorites. We've been through this. We've been talking about it. What do you say to that one? It's a little bit more subtle. You're close. Is that true for not just you? The way to refute that one is to say, is that true for everyone or everybody? Is true for you but not for me true for everybody? Because if it's true for everybody, then I guess it's not just true for you but not for me. It's true for everybody. If it's true for everybody, then true for you but not for me is not true. Right? Think about it. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says true for you but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller and say, "Look, I'd like $5,000 out of my account." Bank teller looks at your account and says, uh, I'm sorry, you only have $47.12 in your account." You know, I can get, you know, how you can get the 5 grand. You go, "Hey, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the 5 grand." Right? it has got to give you the money. Or you're going a little fast down the highway here, down highway 77. Cop pulls you over, walks up to your car, you put the window down, he looks at you and he goes, "You're going a little fast there, 90 in a 55." You go, "Huh?" That's true for you, but not for me. You speed away. He can't give you a ticket, can he? I mean, if it's not true for you... No. True for you, but not for me Maybe the mantra of our day, but that's not the way the world really works, is it? If it's true for you, it's true for everybody. By the way, this applies to religious claims as well. If it is true that Jesus died and rose again for the sins of the world, that's true for everybody, whether you believe it or not. If he did rise again that's true you can't change it if you don't believe it does he suddenly not resurrect from the dead no he he's resurrected already doesn't matter what you think what you believe either he did or he didn't and we'll show you later that the evidence shows that he did but you know one of the answers i thankfully i didn't get the answer here but a lot of times i go to churches and i start out just like i did here i say do you guys believe this book is true and they say, yes. And I say, why? And a lot of times someone will say, because I have faith. Because I have faith. Now, does your faith change what happened in history? It doesn't change a thing about history, right? Your faith doesn't change a thing about history. It doesn't matter whether you believe this book is true or not. It either is or it isn't, regardless of what you believe about it. I mean, do you have to believe something in order to make it true? Do you have to believe, for example, in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Look, there's a, believe, you'll come back. No, right? It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Gravity is going to hold you on the ground regardless of what you believe. How about there is no truth in religion, only science? This is what's being taught at the university. This is what somebody like Richard Dawkins might say. Science can prove everything, and there is no truth in anything regarding religion or philosophy. We get all our truth from science. What's the problem with the statement? Apply the claim to itself. What's the problem with the claim? Does it fit its own criteria? No. You ask the question, is that a scientific truth? That's not a scientific truth. You can't go in the laboratory and prove that. That's a philosophical claim. You can't prove that in the laboratory. In fact, you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. You can't go into the laboratory unless you assume that your senses observe things about the real world and that effects have causes. Those are philosophical claims that you have to bring to the scientific laboratory in order to do science. So that particular claim can't be true because it defeats itself. There's a lot more in the book on this. I don't have time to get into it. How about no one has the truth, you ignorant, arrogant Christians? You think you have the truth? Let me tell you, nobody has the truth. What do you say to somebody who says that? How do you know what? If no one has the truth, then? Then how do you know that's true? How do you know it's true that nobody has the truth? Because nobody has the truth and you have the truth. And I guess it's not true that nobody has the truth because obviously you have the truth. But if you have the truth, then it's the claim that you have that nobody has the truth can't be true. Right? I know this can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. That's what these self-defeating claims do. But actually, this is the most arrogant thing anyone can say. Why? That nobody has the truth. Because in order for you to say that nobody has the truth, what would you have to have? You'd have to have the truth. And then you'd have to know what everybody else does and doesn't know in order to say that none of these people here have the truth. Only I have it. You see, in order for you to say that somebody is wrong, what do you have to know? What is right? You can't say somebody's wrong unless you know what is right. So someone who says nobody has the truth is implicitly claiming that they have the truth. In effect, they're claiming they're God, when you think about it. Because in order to say nobody has the truth, they would have to have the truth themselves, and then they'd have to know what everybody in the universe does and doesn't know. So you might ask somebody who says nobody has the truth, how do you know nobody has the truth? Have you quizzed everybody in the universe exhaustively? Maybe there's somebody out there who does have the truth. In fact, isn't it strange that when you go to a university... Somebody might say, some professor might say to you that nobody has the truth. You know what you ought to say at that point? Yeah, yeah, then why am I here? If nobody has the truth, why am I here? Didn't I come to university to learn the truth? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And why are we supposed to keep an open mind? Aren't we supposed to keep an open mind so when we see the truth that we can close our minds around it and say, yes, this is the truth. You see, there's a difference between being open-minded and empty-minded. You can be empty-minded by never coming to a conclusion, right? There are some questions out there that are closed. For example, does anybody have any doubt that President Lincoln was the president during the Civil War? No. Should you be open-minded about Lincoln being the president? I don't know. I haven't quite made up my mind on that yet. Now, there are some questions that are closed, and I think the same is true when you look at an historical event like the resurrection. There's enough evidence out there to say, I'm not open-minded about that. My mind's closed around that because the evidence is so strong. Now, if there's some piece of evidence that comes in that may refute it, I'll consider it, but I'm pretty sure that the resurrection did occur. You can't be empty-minded. You can be open-minded, but don't be empty-minded, and... Tell people who say, look, nobody has the truth. That's self-defeating. You're claiming to have the truth in order to say that. Oh, this is another one. You should doubt everything. This is what the skeptics say, right? They're skeptical. You should doubt everything. What's the problem with the claim? Yeah, should I doubt that? See, why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? They're sure about skepticism. See, if they started doubting doubt, then they'd be back to knowing something for sure. You ever think about that? If they get skeptical of skepticism, then they're back to knowing something for sure. Now, how many in here have doubts? Come on. If you don't have doubts, you're not thinking. Everybody has doubts, right? You should have doubts. Yes. But when you think about your doubts, if you think about them long enough and you look at enough evidence, you realize that you're, at least I do, I realize most of my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. They're emotional. You know, why, why did this bad thing happen? It doesn't disprove Christianity. In fact, Christianity is the only worldview out there which tells you bad things are going to happen and explains why they're going to happen. (laughs) Oh, this is the trump card, though. You could get through all those objections and they're still going to say, but you ought not judge. First of all, what's the problem with this particular statement? What? It's a judgment, isn't it? It's a judgment. When they're saying you ought not judge, you might say to them, isn't that a judgment? Or if you want to have some fun, you can put your hands on your hips and say, then why are you judging me for judging? (laughs) See, because that's what they're doing. They're judging you. Now, wait, wait, what? Didn't Jesus say something about this? Didn't Jesus say don't judge? Did he say that? What did he say? Yes, go to the passage, Matthew 7. In fact, in Matthew 7... Matthew 7 is now the most popular Bible verse in, in, the, in the country. Did you know that? It used to be John 3.16. But now Matthew seven, one is a verse quoted even by unbelievers. Why? Because they, they think it gets them off the hook. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus said... Judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by that standard. So before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first. Then you'll be able to more clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. Notice, Jesus is not telling you not to judge. He's telling you to take the speck out of your brother's eye, isn't he? He's telling you to do that, right? This is not a command not to judge. It's a command on how to judge. It's a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. Judge right, righteously. Get the sin out of your own life and then go get the sin out of your brother's life. He's telling you to judge. He's not telling you not to judge. In fact, it would be self-defeating to tell you not to judge. Not only that, it would be practically um, problematic. Nobody would be here tonight if you didn't make judgments. Think about how many judgments you make every day between right and wrong, good and evil, safe choices from evil choices. Would you be here tonight if you didn't make judgments? No, you'd be dead already, wouldn't you? You have to make judgments every day. So don't let anybody tell you you ought not make judgments. Now, when you make judgments, you're supposed to make them in a righteous way, not a hypocritical way, and you're to do so without being judgmental. You're supposed to do it in love to try and and, uh, bring the person to the truth. You don't want to be nasty about it, but you have to make judgments. So you have a built-in lie detector. It's called the law of non-contradiction. It's built into the very nature of the universe, and it's built right into your minds. If you can get this law of non-contradiction down... And use it, using the roadrunner tactic, which applies the claim to itself, you'll become a fearless apologist. Because so many of the things you're going to run into in college, so many things you run into in the media, so many things you run into from your friends who say things that try and refute Christianity, they're all self-defeating. They violate the law of non-contradiction, which means they can't be true.
1: Okay, there you go. That's pretty good stuff by Frank Turek. Um, (laughs) That's sounding like a super genius uh, that's that's very true. I mean, people people make these contradictory statements all the time and they don't realize it. But the, the thing I want to focus on it from that clip really is, is what he said at the end. And, and it's basically most decisions are made by emotions. We're at level four right now. We're going to talk a lot about evidence and, and all that stuff a little bit later on. Uh, I've just got to kind of gr- lay the groundwork uh, on how to discuss this topic the meaning of life. And I'm going to try and give you as much intellectual information to chew on as possible. Cuz at the end of the day, it seems like most people even with that, they just kind of throw all the intellectual evidence out the window and they're they're just going by emotions. And if if you don't believe me, you just have to think about it a little bit. I mean, take anyone that smokes cigarettes for long periods of time in their lifetime, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. Like At this point, everybody knows that smoking is bad for you. makes your breath stink. It turns your teeth yellow. It gives you cancer. It increases risk for heart disease and about 100 other things. Uh, I mean, it makes your skin wrinkly. I mean, it does all these things that are well-documented and clearly bad for you. But people still smoke. Now, why is that? Well, that's, that's an emotional thing. It, it satisfies a physical craving, maybe relieves stress. I mean, there's a whole bunch of emotional reasons that people do that. But on paper, you look at that, there is no reason to smoke a cigarette. Now, that's just a, a small illustration of the concept of, of how big emotions play into uh, these discussions. So here's a real quick example, right? I'm a Christian. I I think Christianity's got the goods. You know, I've used that phrase before, Christianity's got the goods. Uh, I I think it's true whether a person believes it or not. But imagine someone that grew up in uh, the faith of Islam, right? So you've got a Muslim whose entire family is Muslim, and then he hears all this evidence for Christianity and intellectually say he's convinced. But then guess what? If he converts, there's a lot of repercussions uh, that go along with that. His family may disown him. I mean, depending on what part of the planet you're on, your life could be at risk. So there are things going on other than just intellectual decisions. But I'm trying to ferret this out as good as possible for you to give you all the answers to all these tough questions. But again, for now, I'm just trying to lay the groundwork on how to approach this question. And that's why I'm going to play another clip. It's given by Andy Stanley out a North Point Church in Georgia. And the reason I like this quote is because it was a sermon delivered basically for non-believers. And uh, that's, this podcast is actually built for non-believers. I, I hope if you are a believer, it kind of bolsters uh, your ammo and your confidence, but I really want to get the skeptics to just think and try and see how they would answer some of these hard questions. So I'm going to play this. It's going to give a whole lot of questions to make you think and just how to start to wrestle with these bigger questions in life. He also covers a little bit on the topic of textual criticism, uh, which is basically where the Bible came from and and is it reliable and can we trust it? And I'll speak just briefly about that at the end as well. Uh, but again. This is just going to lay the groundwork on how to think about these more difficult questions. All right, check this out.
3: We live in a world that um, would have us all believe that basically all religions lead to the same place, and that it really doesn't matter what you believe because eventually we all die and we all go to a good place. That's what 90% of Americans believe anyway, that believe in heaven and there's a good God and a good heaven and a good place and everybody's good. So. At least we all think we're good enough, so we all go there, and it doesn't really matter if you get there through, you know, Christianity or whatever. At the same time, it's kind of odd, we go to school, we go to universities, and um, graduate school, and they tell us that, you know, it's fine to believe whatever you want to believe and all roads lead to God, but I'd be kind of careful about this way to God. Because this is not a book that can be trusted, that because there are so many errors and so many contradictions, because there's so much about the supernatural, that, um it's good maybe for motivation and and politicians love to pick phrases out of here and use them strategically. But other than that, it's not really something that you could place your faith in because after all, it's just a book like every other book, but it's not even as good as most other books, many would argue. And so you came out of your freshman year of college and some uh, professor dismantled your Sunday school faith and they were smarter than you and had more degrees than you and then you got busy and you never looked back. And when anybody brings it up or throws out what about the Bible, you're quick to throw out the things they told you years ago that you never investigated. Well, it's full of errors and it's full of contradictions. Well, actually, no, I haven't read it, but I'm just sure it's full of errors or contradictions or somebody would have told me by now that it's something I should read. And yet the odd thing is, here we are, thousands of us, and all over this city, tens of thousands more, and all over this country, millions of people gather on Sunday morning to worship the God of this book and claim to have a relationship with the son of the God who gave us this collection of books. And and more than that, almost a third or some people say over a third of the world's population claim to be Christians. Over a third of the world's population claim they believe in God and that he sent his son and his name was Jesus and that through Jesus they have found forgiveness of sin and they place their whole eternity based on that claim. Now, how is that? Are are we just that unstable? I mean, do, do we just need propping up that much? Is there something in all of us or in enough of us that says, you know, I don't know if it's true, and I don't even want to know if it's true, but i got to have something other than what I see and hear, that as we heard this morning in the baptism videos, there is this vacuum, there is this hole, there is this vacancy, and all the stuff I have and all the relationships I have, I just can't fill it, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but gee, it seems to work, so I'll just kind of go with that and pass it on to my kids. I mean, is that all there is to this? I mean, how is it that this could be the book is so easily discredited, and yet there's so many of us that keep reading it and believing in it? What's that about? So for the next few weeks, we're going to answer that question. And for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about why specifically we can place our faith in the fact that four of the books we find in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are reliable testimonies, are reliable records of something that actually happened in history 2,000 years ago. Ago. and basically the argument's going to kind of go like this and we'll give you some phrases up on the screen it's going to go like this we're going to argue that the new that the, the new testament books of matthew mark luke and john are a reliable record of things that actually happened. that the gospels are a reliable record of actual events and actual conversations if that is true then what the gospels have to say about jesus is true as well because that's what the four gospels talk about and if the four gospels what the four gospels have to say about jesus is true then in fact he must be the son of god based on the miracles he performed the claims he made and the fact that he rose from the dead and if in fact he is the son of god based on the claims he made and the fact that he rose from the dead then what jesus says about the rest of this book must be true and maybe most or more importantly what jesus said about god is true People ask me all the time, they'll say, well, Andy, do you believe the thing about Jonah and the fish? I mean, give me a break, you know, Adam and Eve. I, mean, you know, I always say the same thing. I say, you know what, I, you know, it's hard to believe that stuff. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I, I know more weird stuff in the Bible than maybe most people because, you know, I'm a professional Christian. You know, you, you pay me to know the Bible. So, I mean, I, got, I mean, you think you've heard some weird stories. I bet I can tell you some stories in there you haven't even heard yet. You'd be like, what? And that all comes down to this. Do I believe those things happen? Yeah. And it's not because I've ever seen anything like that. It's real simple. Because I believe, as we're going to see for the next few weeks, that the evidence clearly points to the fact that these four New Testament books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually record events that happened in history. And if they record events that that happened in history, then what they say about Jesus is true. And if what they say about Jesus is true, then he came from God. And when a man speaks on behalf of God, I don't know about you, but I just kind of go with that. Especially when he predicts his own death and resurrection i just always go with the guy that rose from the dead i don't really care what he teaches i'm for him you know i want to know about that because it's my greatest fear like it's your greatest fear so we're going to talk about can we and this is important can we trust not the whole bible we're not going there we're going to ask the question can we depend on what these four books say about one individual the lord jesus now as we go down this this little path and this little argument um, i'm serious arguments there's two things you got to keep in mind First of all, whenever you're talking about history or things that have happened in the past, there's two things you've got to keep in mind. Number one, you can't prove or disprove things that have happened in the past. That it's not a matter of proving, it's a matter of looking at evidence. And that's why in a courtroom, they don't, you know, you don't really prove anything. You basically present evidence and a jury looks at the evidence and makes a decision. So whenever we talk about the past, we have to ask the question... What does the evidence point toward? Or we can say it this way. The trustworthiness of any historical account is judged on the basis of evidence, not proof. For instance, tomorrow you go to work and um, you you say to people in your office, say, hey, I went to North Point Community Church yesterday. And somebody walks over and says, I heard you say you went to North Point Community Church yesterday. You didn't go to North Point Community Church yesterday. You say, well, I certainly did. They say, prove it. You say, well, I got the bulletin. I didn't prove anything. I got a tape. That didn't prove anything. Hey, Fred, Fred, come over here. Didn't you see me at North Point Community Church? Yeah, I saw him there. Didn't prove anything. He could be lying. Whenever it comes to asking the question, did something happen in the past? You can't prove it. You can only prove what is observable and repeatable. In science, you observe and you repeat. You observe and you repeat. But you can't observe the past, and you can't repeat in actual real time the past. It's not observable and repeatable. So when it comes to trying to figure out what happens in the past, we ask the question, what is the evidence? And we make decisions based on evidence. The second thing is this. As you look at evidence, you have to ask the question, not what is a possible explanation, but what is the most probable explanation? Say it this way. When drawing conclusions about evidence, probability takes precedence over possibility. It's possible that you stole the bulletin. It's possible somebody gave you the tape, and it's possible you got to Fred before everybody else and said, hey, Fred, I'm going to say I went to North Point. I mean, all of that's possible, but the probability is you actually went to church. When it comes to, to, you know, to the legal system, you, you've heard the phrase probable cause. People ask the question, what was the probable cause? Not the possible cause, because there's 50 possibilities, but what's the most probable cause based on the evidence as presented? That's how you determine. That's how you look at history. Um, years ago, I was in a car wreck. I was driving my wife's car that we inherited, or she got when we, I got, when we got married. Her dad gave it to her, then I guess he gave it to me, didn't he, when he gave it to me, anyway. So anyway, so I had this, this big American car, this is years ago with a real bumper. You know, they used to make real bumpers you could see, you know, like big piece of steel that wrapped around the back. I you know, that's a bumper. And on the bumper had a big old giant piece of rubber. I mean, you knew where the bumper was. And I'm sitting still at, at Highway 41 over in Cobb County. It's a four-lane. And I'm turning left across traffic, and this lady in a Volvo station wagon, it was raining. I don't know, there was a lane beside me that was wide open. There was nobody around. She just plowed right into the back of me, just boom, and totaled her Volvo. The engine dropped out. fire, you know, fire, but steam, you know, and liquids, you know. You couldn't even tell my car had been hit, honestly. We never had it fixed. We never even took it in. Uh, There was nothing wrong. It tore and it kind of ripped the piece of rubber that went around the big old American steel bumper. Her car is total. So um, I get in the car. I'm already in the car. I get out and look. Then I go pull across traffic and I park on the other side, two lanes away, facing the other direction. and, and, And she's standing by her car and we wait for the police to come. True story. So the police get, policeman gets there. I'm on the other side. Okay, I'm not even close. So here's this Volvo that's total sitting out in the middle of Highway 41 with nothing around it. The policeman pulls in behind her. gets out of his car. And, and you know, she chats a minute. Then he walks out in front of her Volvo. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get across to come over and talk to the policeman. And I notice he's standing there looking at the front of her Volvo. And he's looking over here on the street. And he's looking. He gets out his pad. And, I, and when I walked up, I looked. And there's a dead possum about 15 feet uh, that had been hit the night before. I mean, it's like a, you know, dead possum. So I walk up in the Fulton County police and it was so funny. He looks at me with this grin on his face, he said, This possum do all that. <laughs> now, is that possible? Yeah, I don't know. You know, the bionic possum got up, she hit it and totaled the car and killed the possum. Look what he did. But no, nobody, I mean, that's not, you know, that, that's not probable. I mean, you could weave some tale. but what about this? What if she'd said, oh, officer, I'm so glad you're here the, the, uh, this, to save me from this evil man. I pulled up behind him, he jumped out of his car, opened his trunk, got a sledgehammer, and beat the, out of my car, totaled my car, and then before I could do anything, someone drove up and he handed the sledgehammer to the person and drove off and thank you, officer, for being here. Is that possible? It's possible. I mean, if we went to court, I mean, would it be like, excuse me, ma'am, you want to go over that one more, you know? What about this one? Sir, officer, I'm so glad you're here because I pulled up behind Mr. Stanley. He put his car in reverse and rammed me. Then he put it in reverse and he rammed and he rammed me, and he rammed me, and he rammed me, and he totaled my car. And then he drove over there and he's going to tell you that I ran to the back of him. Is that possible? It's possible. Is it probable? I mean... Why would you even go there? The point is this. When it comes to possibility, you can look at any event in the past and come up with all kinds of possible explanations. But the question is, when you're trying to arrive at what actually happened, you ask, in light of the evidence, what is the most probable explanation? And what we're going to see, I hope, or what the evidence I'm going to throw your way is this, that as we begin to look in detail at where these four books, not the whole Bible not the whole new testament as we look in detail at the evidence given in these four books the most probable explanation i mean you can come up with all kinds of possibilities why four different men wrote four similar accounts about the same jewish carpenter over a three-year period i mean you can come up with all kinds of reasons why four guys would take the time to do that i guess but the most probable explanation is, is because this is what happened that's why they wrote it down So we're going to look at the evidence. Now, there's two ways to look at uh, ancient manuscripts. And basically, the Bible is an ancient manuscript. All of ancient history comes from ancient manuscripts because things were written down, and that's how we got what we got. The question is, how do you determine whether an ancient manuscript is trustworthy? And in scholarly circles, there's basically two things you do. You look at the actual manuscript, the date and the distribution of the manuscript. And then secondly, you find out what you can about the people who wrote the manuscript. You ask the question, are these reliable people? Are these people that could be trusted? they have a motive to write what they wrote? You know, were they being paid by somebody? Was there, was there an angle? You know, was there a reason other than what we know of on the surface why they would write these things? Next week, we're going to look at the witnesses themselves, the guys who wrote this. But today, for just a few minutes, and I'll try to keep this from being boring, I want to talk to you a little bit about the manuscripts themselves. Because this is extremely important, especially as you think about the New Testament manuscripts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically, compared to other ancient manuscripts that come from the first century. Let me illustrate it this way. You see, when you were in high school, you got a book that looked kind of like this. This is actually a high school um, history book. And I turned over to the place where it talks about Roman history. Let me read you something interesting here, okay? Because you read this stuff and you think, gee, where did they get this? Did they find like novels buried in the dirt, like Roman? This is a Roman history book and written in Latin and we translate it into English. Is that how we know what happened? But basically, historians took bits and pieces and fragments and took all the information they could and wove it together and they come up with these seamless stories that appear in our history. Um, This is kind of neat. Listen to this. This is sort of right in the middle of a paragraph. Caesar realized that he could not win power without a loyal army, so he made himself proconsul of Gaul, a region that is today known as France. In his ten years as proconsul, Caesar brought all of Gaul under Roman rule and showed his superb abilities as a military leader and organizer. Caesar issued written reports about his campaigns and victories to keep the people of Rome informed. Students in Latin can still read these clearly detailed reports in what is known as the Gallic Wars. Now you read that and you you stop and say, how did they know that? No video, no pictures, no novels, no history books. How did they know that much detail that he did this, he did this for 10 years, it goes on. Crassus died in 53 BC. Pompey, meanwhile, grew jealous of Caesar's rising fame. To head off his rival, Pompey made himself the sole proconsul. Then he persuaded the Senate to order Caesar to return home without his army. How do they know that? I mean, and that, that's basically what history books are about, right? They just go on and on. You read this stuff and you go, this is so fascinating. How, where did they get that information? It's real simple. From ancient manuscripts. In fact, it's interesting. In this high school book, it references, it references the commentaries on the Gallic Wars. Let me tell you about the Gallic Wars. The Gallic Wars is a a manuscript. We have 10 copies of it. We have 10 copies of the Gallic Wars. It was written in the first century by a fellow who was hired by the emperor to write a history. Now, just let me throw this out. You're you're smart, folks. You know, can we trust everything written by a historian that's working for the emperor? The emperor's saying, I want you to write a history about me. Go ahead. I'll read it later. You know. So when you're hired by the emperor to write a history of Rome about the current emperor, his legacy, and, you know, his ancestors, I mean, there's just going to be some stuff you leave out, right? Because he's going to either scratch it out or scratch you out, right? I mean, so anyway, basically the Gallic Wars, it's interesting, we have ten copies of this document, only ten survived, and interestingly enough, the earliest one, the the one that is that goes back the furthest, is dated 900 A.D. That this happened in the first century. That we don't have one from the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, the sixth, seventh. We don't have any of this. We have copies of a copy 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 that stretches into 900 A.D. And we have ten copies. And yet, no one disputes the fact that that's history, right here is right here quoted, you know, reference in a high school history book. That's history. It was written by one person who was hired by a Roman emperor, and we don't even have a copy except nine almost 900 years beyond when it was really written because the parchment wore out, things were lost, and so they made copies and copies and copies. Another huge find for Roman historians... Um, was some writings by a fellow named Tacitus. Tacitus is quoted everywhere when you, when you study Roman history. Tacitus wrote um, at the end, of, during the end of the first century, and Tacitus was, just wrote volumes and volumes of history. He actually wrote 30 volumes of Roman history, 30 volumes divided into two groups of 15. Unfortunately, more than half of his work has been lost forever. Nobody knows where it is. There are no copies anywhere. But we have two manuscripts... Two manuscripts that contain about half of his 30 volumes. We know there were more volumes because he references those throughout the volumes that we do have. So we know originally there were 30. We only have half and we only have two copies of the half. And the two copies we have are dated 900 A.D. and 1100 A.D. So once again, we have copies of something that was written in the first century. But the copies we have are a thousand, up to a thousand years old. Old, because they're copies of, copies of 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 copies And yet, in your university history book, and in your high school history book, Tacitus is quoted like it's just gospel truth. I mean, nobody, if your high school student wrote on the paper, I don't believe this actually happened because it's on the source of one person, and the earliest manuscript we have is 900 A.D., and besides, he was working for a Roman emperor, so it's suspect. I don't think any of this is true I mean, I don't think your high school history teacher is going to go, brilliant observation, you get an A. They're going to go, just write down what we taught you. It's in, it's in the history book. You know it's true. Now, let me ask you a question. You know where I'm going with this. Wouldn't you expect Roman history to be something that survives through the ages? Absolutely. I mean, these Roman emperors have this stuff written. They have it copied. They store it. They pass it down to the next generation. They they would build vaults to save these parchments. I mean, they worked hard so that these things would survive generation after generation. So we would expect to have some texts from first century Roman history. We would expect that. I mean, all the power of Rome, right? I mean, you know, world leaders protecting this stuff. We would expect that. Let me ask you this. Would you expect to have... Four detailed accounts of the life of one man who was a Jewish carpenter from where? Where was it, Mabel? Galilee? From Galilee. What's a Galilee? Who didn't lead anything? He didn't write anything. And yet, listen, we have more information about Jesus Christ than the Roman emperors of his day. And you had all of Rome with all their wealth and all their power producing this stuff. And the the most recent document we have is like 900 A.D. And we've got a couple of copies. Get this. The gospel manuscripts. Not the whole New Testament. We'll get to that later. Just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have hundreds of manuscripts. And you know what the earliest ones date to? Not 900 A.D., not 800, not 700, not 600, not 500, not 400, not 300. We have fragments of the book of John that are dated 135 A.D. And guess where it was found? Not Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria. It was found in Egypt. This goes back to distribution. What would a copy of the gospel be doing in Egypt, for goodness sake? Because that's how broadly distributed this stuff was. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their complete form just like in your Bibles. By 250 A.D., we have copies that old of those four books. Now, where does that come from? Why in the world would so much time and attention be given to recording the life, and get this, not even the whole life of Jesus, three years. I mean, historians would write volumes over years and years of a Roman emperor and his family and his legacy and the future and all the stuff he's done. These guys gave incredible detail to just three years of a, Rome, of, of a Jewish carpenter. And it has survived through the ages. And not has it just survived through the ages. We have far more manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than we do of, of any other ancient history. It's unbelievable. And people say, well... Yeah, but you know, all that copy of copy of copy of copy of copy. There's all kinds of mistakes and I'm sure you've heard this. You know, the Bible was written by man and it was copied and it's full of errors because of all the copies. Got some great news for you. There are there are differences in the manuscripts. But here's the good news. Unlike secular history, and and if if you talk to a secular historian who's honest, they'll agree. If only they had the quality and the number of manuscripts they had for ancient history that we have for the New Testament. I mean, there's no other document that's even close to um, being documented as well as the New Testament. There's not even a, a close second. And yes, there are differences in some of the manuscripts, but the good news is this. We have so many thousands of manuscripts that it's very simple to back down into what we think the original said. In fact, when I was in graduate school, um, we had to learn to do higher textual criticism, higher criticism, textual criticism. And textual criticism, we'd have to sit down with our Greek New Testaments and the professor would say, okay, the Byzantine manuscripts, it says spirit. And the Western manuscripts, it says Holy Spirit. Now you take the evidence and decide, well, did the original author write spirit or Holy Spirit? It was just fascinating work. You know, as so we're going through all this stuff and we're tracing and we're looking and we're looking and might, you know, we're just gonna figure out, because we are these students, what do we know? I mean, people through the ages have debated this, but we're figuring out, well, did the guy say spirit or was it Holy Spirit? Did somebody add a word or did somebody leave a word out? So one day I go to my professor, Dr. Manning. I said, I said, um, I mean, Dr. Fanning. I said, Dr. Fanning, I said, I got a question. I said, I know this is fascinating stuff. People spend their whole life trying to sort this stuff out. Give me the hard one. I mean, where's the one that says, one of them said Jesus had 12 disciples and one said he had 26. Where's that one? I was just making this stuff up. You know, where's the one that said he was crucified and then there was the ones that said, no, he fell off a cliff. You know, where, where are the big ones? Where are the ones that's like, oh my gosh, look at the conflict, the Bibles? He said, Andy said, there aren't any. They're all as trivial as that. We have given you the more blatant ones to work through as Greek students. You see, all the scribal errors and stuff, there's lots of scribal errors, but it would be like you taking a letter that someone had written you and copying it. Would you make some mistakes? Yeah, you might make some mistakes. But at the end of the day, the letters wouldn't say two different things, Right? It wouldn't be like a completely different letter about a completely different subject. You may misspell a word. You may leave out a word. You may make a plural, a singular. Those are the kinds of variant readings. In fact, and and you can go to any bookstore and buy a Greek New Testament. And the footnotes have all the variant readings. It tells you what area of the country, what area of the world, rather, the manuscripts were found. And here's the variant readings. And they amount to nothing significant in terms of theology, nothing significant even in terms of history. So the point is this. Just based upon manuscripts alone. Just, I mean, you compare, not even the whole New Testament. In fact, in case you're interested, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. We have hundreds of manuscripts of just the four Gospels. But just the Gospels alone, if you just looked in terms of the integrity and the distribution of the manuscripts, these four books of the Bible outweigh most of, some would argue, all of the details of Roman history during the same time. Not to mention other ancient history where we have no trace of anything and have to piece things together based on archaeology alone. It's unbelievable. So the question then is, well, Andy, if it's that obvious, then why doesn't secular you know, historians, why don't they consider this history? Why don't we read, you know, uh, Tacitus wrote and Matthew wrote. Why don't we write, you know, the, the Caesar claim, but at the same time, John tells us, I mean, why aren't the things that we find in the Gospels, the history in the Gospels, the events in the Gospel, the rulers, why aren't those things woven in as just part of what we would read in our history books? Why aren't they considered history? If there's more manuscripts, if there are better manuscripts, if they're more widely distributed, distributed and if there aren't major contradictions within the different regions of manuscripts found all over that part of the world, why, I mean... Why would we trust one person's view on, you know, what happened during one Roman Roman emperor's reign as opposed to four guys talking about one person? I mean, what's the problem? The problem is real simple, and I want to be real sensitive how I say this. The problem is that there is a prejudice against the supernatural. Let me explain what I mean by that. It kind of goes like this, and I'm being a little facetious, so I'm not trying to be critical of anybody, but I'm trying to summarize a lot of stuff. It kind of goes like this. Before I look... At those texts, I want you to know I do not believe in the supernatural. It's not that I may not believe in God, but I don't believe in supernatural things. I don't think God did hocus-pocus weird things, walking on water and fish and st- you know, all that stuff. I, I just don't believe, I may believe in God, but I don't believe He does that kind of stuff. And I don't believe that a guy came along and was God. Okay, So before, before I look at the evidence, I just want you to know that's my opinion. Okay, Before I even look at the evidence... Now I'm going to look at the evidence and go, Oh, supernatural, we can't, we can't consider that. Oh, supernatural there too, can't consider that. In fact, all four of those books have supernatural events, so we have to discount the whole thing. Now let me t- try to explain to you in, in best terms that I can the fallacy of that kind of thinking. Here it is. And the problem is in our academic circle, it gets academicized to the point where it sounds like a real intellectual kind of smart people really wouldn't believe that because that's for us people who need a crutch. But here's, how, here's the problem. It is foolish... It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense at all to judge the authenticity of an ancient manuscript according to my personal 21st century experience. It's an irrational argument. It's not even an argument. To say, let me kind of say it in more detail, since I've never seen anything supernatural... Since my mama never saw anything supernatural, since my mama's mama never seen anything supernatural, since my friends have not seen supernatural things, because I don't live in a world where supernatural things happen, I've concluded that supernatural things never happen. Now show me the evidence. This doesn't even make any sense. I, under, I, I can understand why emotionally there would be a resistance to viewing these books as reliable because of the supernatural. But the question is this. That's not a problem with these books. That's a problem with an orientation we have imposed on the book. So I'll take the word of somebody working for the emperor over the word of four people who wrote about the same person over a three-year period of life, basically because Tacitus doesn't talk about the supernatural. So I know he's trustworthy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on the other hand, who died, by the way, for what they said they saw, they're not trustworthy because they talk about the supernatural. It's not even an argument. It would be like me saying this. It would be like saying, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. We got pictures, I don't care. We got a museum, I'm telling you. I don't think the Holocaust happened the way you think it happened. What do you mean? Because. For the Holocaust to have happened, there would have to be a category of hatred, racism, insanity... That was so powerful that it could not only impact a person, but impact an entire nation. And I don't think that kind of intense prejudice and evil exists. And the reason I don't think it exists is because I've never felt that way toward a people or a person or a race. None of my friends have ever felt that way. I've never seen that kind of racism. I've never seen that kind of of evil. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. Therefore, consequently, I don't think it exists. And the only way the Holocaust could have happened the way they say it happened is for that kind of evil to exist. And since I've never experienced it, since I've never seen it, I don't think it exists. So give me a few days and I'm going to come up with another explanation for all those pictures and all those things and all those testimonies and all those books. I'm not saying something didn't happen. I'm just telling you it's not because there was because of what you said it happened is the reason it happened. I think there's another explanation because going in to look at the evidence, I've decided that kind of hatred doesn't really exist in the world. He would say, I don't care what you've experienced, and I don't care what your friends have experienced, and I don't care what you've seen or not seen. Look at the evidence. We have pictures, right? What if I said, you know what? I don't believe all those stories about firemen racing up the stairs and saving all those people in the World Trade Center. I don't believe any of that happened. I think all of that's fictitious. Well, what do you mean you think it's fictitious? Well... To race up into a burning building in the middle of all that chaos to save people would mean those firemen had to have an incredible amount of courage and daring. And I know I wouldn't do it. And my friends said they wouldn't do it. And I've never seen that kind of heroism and that kind of courage displayed. So I don't think that kind of courage and heroism even exist. And the only way those stories could be true is for that kind of thing to exist. Since it doesn't exist, I don't think it happens the way you think it happened. Now, I know something happened. But you give me a few days, I'm going to come up with a different explanation for what happened based upon the fact that my experience doesn't substantiate the idea of that kind of heroism, that kind of courage. You would say, what in the world does your experience have to do with history? I, I mean, the fact that you haven't experienced something or felt something has nothing to do with whether or not something happened in the past. And here's the point. As we come to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and if, you're a, if you're not a Christian or not a church person, I, I completely understand you come to this, in fact, you came to church today with a predisposition toward, against the supernatural. That's okay. Of course you have one because you don't see supernatural things. But all I want to do is warn you, be careful that you don't take what you've experienced or haven't experienced, what you've seen or haven't seen, and say, therefore, I know these books can't record what really happened based on what has or hasn't happened to me. Do you see, that's not an argument. That's irrational. That's not academic That's not scientific. That is a leap of faith. It's imposing my experience on history. How foolish. How unfair. And I think it's part of the reason why God in his wisdom didn't just have Matthew say, let me tell you what I saw. And he didn't just have Mark say, hey, I talked to Peter. Let me tell you what Peter told me. And he didn't say, hey, let me, I, I'm going to get Luke to interview a bunch of eyewitnesses. Let me tell you what Luke got, got, the information he gathered. And he didn't just say, hey, John, I want you, one person, to write it down and tell everybody what you saw. But in his wisdom, because of the skepticism of mankind, not just in this century, but in every century, even in this century, God, in his wisdom, did everything possible There was no video. He did everything. There was no photography. He did everything possible to capture what actually happened in the first century and protected it and delivered it to us in this generation. And if what these books say actually happened, actually happened, and if Jesus actually said what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say he said, then we have reason to pause And we have reason to reflect and say just because I've never seen God do anything doesn't mean he hasn't done anything. And just because I've never seen God intervene with humankind and just because I've never seen God interrupt tragedy doesn't mean he hasn't. And just because I haven't seen a miracle doesn't mean there hasn't been one. And maybe I need to look at the evidence based on the authority of the evidence alone. And be careful not to impose my 21st century experience on way, what maybe God has protected and delivered to me. You know what? This same kind of thinking, and, and I said this in the first service and people laughed, and I, I don't mean this to be funny because I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or view, but it's that same reasoning that says, that you know, I grew up here in, in high school and college, that says once upon a time there was nothing, and then there was something. Once upon a time the universe wasn't, And then, boom, the universe was. And we say, wait a minute, what about a creator? No, 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 no. We can't talk about a creator because I've decided before we begin the discussion, there's not a creator. There's no intelligent designer. So I will now look at the evidence, and I will come up with a theory, and I will come up with an explanation for the design of the universe, but I cannot factor in the supernatural because I've decided before the discussion begins there is no supernatural. And yet, all of us look at creation and we think somebody had to design this. There had to be a creator. It's too big of a leap of faith to believe that once upon a time, the universe wasn't. And boom, the universe was. And from an explosion came us. You know what? I haven't proved anything. All I'm saying is this. What does the universe point toward? Why can't we just go with the conclusion that the universe is pointing toward? Because I can't. I've already decided before I look at the evidence. I can't factor in the supernatural. All I want you to hear this morning is this. Be careful. That's not reasonable. Isn't it logical? If you were on trial for your life, or your child was on trial for your life, would we want the jurors to come in with a predisposition toward what could have happened based on what's happened to them in their lives? No. We would want them to look at the evidence and conclude based on the evidence, not their personal prejudices. And see, my prayer for you, if maybe you're not a religious person or Christian or you don't know where you used to be or you, know, you were in and now you're out, here, here, here's our prayer during this series, is that just as we believe the design of the universe screams of a designer, in the same way, this is so great, in the same way, these manuscripts send us a messenger, a message that not only is there a designer and a creator, there's a Savior who is Christ the lord and just as god has given us overwhelming evidence in nature that he is alive and well through the portals of time and through his careful selection and protection we have the message of forgiveness not from one eyewitness not from two eyewitnesses but from two eyewitnesses somebody who interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses and then one individual who got his information from one single eyewitness it's god's way of saying something happened and here's the explanation as to what happened
1: all right so i think there was a lot of good stuff in there by andy stanley Uh, most importantly i really like how he makes the distinction between possible explanations and probable explanations Like, you can come up with any story you want. Uh, You know, he told the story about the robotic possum. But at the end of the day, that's really not a probable explanation. And when you couple that with people's bias against the supernatural, you can see why why many folks are just automatically dismissive of a book like the Bible. Now, before the clip, I mentioned a concept uh, called textual criticism which is basically just the scholarly field of examining manuscript documents and parchments and scraps from ancient scribes and trying to determine what the original text said. Now, this topic wasn't the original point of the show, but we've already covered it so much. I'm going to go ahead and put this to rest right here and right now. So many people just think that The New Testament is full of errors and contradictions, and it was copied over the years, and it was changed over the years, and and one guy would copy to the next guy, and that guy would change the words and add his own little spin on what he wanted to add. You know, this guy had an agenda, this guy had a different agenda, and before you know it, the Bible that we have in our hands today is nothing like the original and when I hear someone say something like that, I know for sure that they have not done their homework and they do not know what they're talking about. And I'm so confident of this that I, I have to actually show a little bit of patience and be totally calm with people and try and gently walk them through uh, the air of their thinking. And I, I guess I understand why someone would think that, you know, they've probably heard that story somewhere else and it seems to it seems to make sense and it may fit in conveniently with, with other worldviews that they may already hold. But from a scholarly point of view, it has zero legs to stand on. And again, just to put this topic to bed, I am going to play another quick little clip from Frank Turek uh, on this subject. The audio is a little sketchy, but I think you'll get the point. And then after that, I'll, I'll play a quote for you from a non-Christian that will pretty much rest the case on this subject of if the Bible we have today is wildly and crazy different from what it was originally written. Okay, so check this out. Let's take a look at the New Testament now.
2: Is it true or is it riddled with error? There are two questions we need to look at to investigate the truth of the New Testament. The first question is, do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? We don't have the originals. We only have copies, and in some cases we have copies of copies, right? Secondly, though, do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? It's one thing to have an accurate copy. It's another thing to know that the copy tells the truth, because we can have an accurate copy of a lie, right? I mean, just because you have an accurate copy of the original doesn't mean the original is true. Let's start with question one. Do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? Well, let's take a look at the evidence here. Yes, we know that to question one, we do have an accurate copy of the original. First of all, we have earlier manuscripts than anything else in the ancient world. We have more manuscripts, we have more accurately copied manuscripts, and we have more abundantly supported manuscripts. And I'll go through each one of these four points, and this is all in chapter nine of the book. Let's talk about the first two. We have earlier manuscripts and more manuscripts. And this is a chart in the book, just to show you how many manuscript copies we have of the uh, New Testament documents. okay? Now, I don't know if you can see that, uh, but if you can, it is in the book. And basically what this is showing is that the New Testament has over 5,000, 5,700 copies. Many of them are fragments. Some of them are full manuscripts of New Testament documents. The earliest one goes back to within 25 years of the original. Everything else from the ancient world has many fewer copies and a much longer time gap between when the original was written and the first copy. So Homer, the Iliad, is the closest thing to the New Testament. 500-year gap, 643 copies. Everything else that you see up on the screen there has uh, anywhere from 750 to a 1,400-year gap, and they survive on just a handful of copies. So if you can't reconstruct the New Testament, then you can't reconstruct anything from the ancient world. You now Nobody really, really doubts whether or not we've got you know, some of Plato's writings accurately copied. But they doubt the New Testament. Now why is that? Because what does the New Testament talk about? Miracles, see? And they think miracles you can't believe in. So they rule miracles out before they look at the evidence. All right, But if you can't reconstruct the New Testament, then throw everything else out from the ancient world. I also not believe anything else either. Nobody's ready to do that, thankfully. How about more accurately copied manuscripts? Let me show you how they figure out what the original said. Let's suppose we have an original manuscript and we have four copies. And the original's lost. It's gone. We don't have it. But there's... In copy one, an error in the third word, first letter. In copy two, there's an error in the third word, second letter. In copy three, there's an error in the third word, third letter. And in copy four, there's an error in the third word, fourth letter. Can you figure out what the original said? <laughs> of course! You can cross-check all of these copies here, and you can reconstruct that that actually is Romans 3.26. Now, you know what the original said, Right? You compare them. That's how they figure out what the original said. Now, note, there are far fewer variations in the New Testament documents than are given here in this example. That's just to show you how they figure it out. It would be like me if I stood up here and said, you know, my name is Frank Turk and here's my Social Security number, and here's my address, and here's my phone number, and you guys started writing it down, right? And uh, we collected everything you wrote down afterward. Uh, Could we reconstruct without any errors what I said from all of what you wrote down? Sure, even though some of you may have had errors and gotten a couple numbers wrong or a couple letters wrong, most of you would have it right. And we could cross-check it all and say, yeah, this is how you spell it, and yeah, this was a social security number, yeah, there's enough of these that have the right phone number, and it's all the same phone number, that must be the right one, right? See, that's how they figure it out. But if that's not enough... We also have more abundantly supported manuscripts. We could still reconstruct the entire New Testament, even without the manuscripts. How so? Because the New Testament early church fathers quoted the New Testament so much, 36,289 times to be exact. These are the early church fathers from the first to the third century. They quoted it so much, that you could walk into any public library today, pull out the works of the early church fathers, and reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. So the answer to question one is yes. All right, let's go to question two. Oh, by the way, let me point out one other thing before we move on. Some of you may say, well, wait a minute. You're saying that's God's word right there. That's where you're going. You're not saying that now to me, right, because we're trying to prove that. If this really is God's word, why wouldn't he have just kept, preserved the original? We wouldn't have all this trouble. And I am speculating here. I really don't know why he didn't, but I have a couple of ideas. What would happen if there was an original and the person who had the original had control over it? What could that person do? Change it. Change what it says, right? But if... You have a copy, 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 and I have a copy, and I change my copy. Are you going to know? You're going to know that, right? So I think, actually, this is kind of ironic, but by not preserving the original, God could better preserve the original. Does that make sense? You spread copies all over the ancient world, it's hard for one guy to change anything.
1: Okay, so that clip basically expands upon what Andy Stanley said in his sermon. And it's basically, we have so many copies and fragments from the New Testament. Like, There's very little doubt that the Bible we hold in our hands today is the same Bible in the same words that were written thousands of years ago by the original authors. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because definitely, like Frank Turk mentioned, we can have copies of a lie. Now we'll address the truth and the lie and the claims of of the Bible later. But for now I think it's pretty clear that the Bible was not changed. And to further prove my point and to just let the audience know that when I tackle a subject, I read both sides of the debate and I try and deconstruct and find my way through all the noise just to find the most accurate answers. And there is an author by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's kind of like what theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking is to his field. That's what Bart Ehrman is to New Testament scholarship. I mean, I've even seen Bart Ehrman on The Daily Show back when Jon Stewart was hosting it. So he he actually he's actually somewhat famous, which is pretty amazing. For a college professor and a scholar. But it's also worth noting that he is a non-Christian. But he learned all of his scholarly methods from his mentor and teacher, Bruce Metzger, who was in fact a Christian. Now Bruce Metzger died in 2007, but he was basically the man in textual criticism. So you've got these two people, Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman, the old guard and the new guard, if you will. Very few people have the insight and the expertise that these two have. Bruce was a Christian. Bart Ehrman is a non-Christian. But I'm going to read you a quote from a book, right? This is the New York Times best-selling book called Misquoting Jesus. It's by Bart Ehrman. And the subtitle is the story behind who changed the Bible and why and I read this book and the whole book is is sort of making the case that yeah the bible was in fact changed or we can't rely on it and it was very well written and you have to really really dig to to find the errors in the arguments made in the book but they can be found and if you look on page 252 this is in the paperback edition I I don't know if this is still in print or what. Um, they might have the hard copy, but in the back of this particular book, there is a question-and-answer interview, Q&A with Bart Ehrman, and his responses. All right, and On page 252 of this book, this is what Bart Ehrman says about his hero and mentor, Bruce Metzger. Now, pay close attention to what he says. Bruce Metker is one of the great scholars of modern times, and I dedicated the book to him because he was both my inspiration for going into textual criticism and the person who trained me in the field. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him, and even though we may disagree on important religious questions, he is a firmly committed Christian, and I am not. We are in complete agreement on a number of very important historical and textual questions, If he and I were put in a room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement, maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands. So there you have it. If you listen closely, he says there's maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands that they would disagree on. And he later goes on to say that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript traditions of the New Testament. So this lines up right with what Andy Stanley said, right with what Frank Turek says, and now right with what Bart Ehrman says. Basically, we know what the original authors wrote. Now, whether that's true or not is a different thing, but we know for sure what they wrote down on manuscripts and parchment and all that good stuff. So you may ask yourself, well, why is Bart Ehrman not a Christian? And I also know the answer to that. He's been quoted many times as saying he just cannot understand the problem of evil. Why would a powerful God allow so much evil in the world? Now, there's two parts to that question. There's actually an intellectual part to that. like It's called the intellectual problem of evil and then there is the emotional problem of evil and we will we will talk about both of those at some point but i just want to highlight that you have a highly highly sophisticated and educated individual that is not a christian and the main reason he gives is guess what an emotional reason which i get i i understand the desire to have questions about the suffering in the world. And we will talk about those. But it's just interesting to me that one can overlook such large amounts of evidence for one emotional reason. But I guess that's part of being human. Okay, so now I am going to wrap up this show. Hopefully we've given you a lot to think about. Hopefully your head hurts a little bit, hurts in a good way. And we have some ground rules laid down for how to approach these questions. As some parting thoughts, I just want to let you know about maybe a method for kind of choosing or figuring out which view is stronger than another view or which view quote unquote wins. And the way I do it is actually pretty simple. It's almost like a scorecard in boxing. When you watch a boxing match, the, the person that throws and lands the most punches wins that round. And if you win enough rounds, it starts to become clear who the stronger boxer is. Well, to me, it's very similar in matters like this, except instead of counting punches, you start counting questions that can't be answered. So if I ask a hard question to you and you don't have an answer, that counts as a punch in the face. (laughs) And if you ask me a question and I can't answer That counts as a punch in my face. Now, to be clear, I just want to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. Like, when I ask a question, you don't necessarily have to answer it right then and right there. You can actually go back, try and figure it out, ponder, do some research. But at that point, if you still can't answer the question, consider that a mark against you. So, for example, in my email exchange with my friend, when he holds the position that all morality is opinion based and then he goes on to tell what he thinks people should and should not do when it comes to gun control and i ask him hey when you say people should not have assault rifles is that fact or opinion now notice that was a question (laughs) and guess what he never got back to me that's where the email exchange stopped and we kind of changed up well he kind of changed subjects so to me that's that's a scorecard i asked the question That he could not answer. Now, I think he can't answer that because there isn't an answer. You can't both hold a view that morality is both fact and opinion, which is basically what he's doing. So, anyway, I just wanted to give you a way to kind of think about how to quote unquote keep score. And I know this is a podcast, right? Communication is one way. So I'm going to have to come up with the questions. And I'm going to try my best to make up some really, really hard questions on both sides of all of these topics. Because honestly, they're questions that I've wrestled with anyway. And I'd like to share that insight with you. Now, as we close the episode, I'm going to give you a warm-up of what are some of the things you can expect uh, down the road. Because I do want to address a host of these difficult questions. So a skeptic may say to a Christian, hey, the only reason that you're a Christian is because that's the way your parents raised you. So how would I respond to that? I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ways. I throw it right back at him and say, well, the only reason you're a skeptic is because that's the way your family raised you or that's the way you were taught in college. And it it sort of becomes clear at that point that how you were raised is irrelevant to whether a thing is true or not. The other approach I would take is to say, well, are you saying Christianity is true because I was born in Indiana and my parents raised me a certain way? Like, I would just phrase it that way to sort of illustrate how crazy of an idea that is. So there's lots of variations of that question, but you get the gist. One has nothing to do with the other. So now, here is the question that I would have for the skeptic. And if you are a skeptic, I want you to try and think about this and see how you would answer this question. And again, if you can't come up with a good answer, that may be an indication that your position's a little weaker than you may have originally thought. So here's the question as we wrap up the show. If Christianity is a fairy tale, which I assume you think it is, and there's no way that Jesus was raised from the dead, where did that belief come from, right? So there's, there's millions of people today that believe Jesus rose from the dead. And you might say, well, they read this Bible and they just believe it because the Bible says that. All right, so peel that onion all the way back. Who, who were the first people to write that down? Then ask yourself, why did those people believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I can already tell you who those people are, his disciples. So that would be my question for the skeptics. Why did his disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Or were they lying? Or what are some of the other options that you can come up with? So think about that, and we'll talk about that question and a whole bunch of other things a little bit later on. But until next time, keep pondering these deeper issues. See you later.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep
2: hacking and stacking your way to success.